Hey, Pronouncers, welcome back to the Printable Pronouncers podcast. Really excited to be back on the episode because we've got an awesome guest, Mr. Walker Williams, founder of Teespring, but now working on a new business called Fourth Wall. Uh, Teespring went through this crazy, crazy growth. Uh, you just got to clip this. Just like listen to this for one second. We went from single digit millions the first year, very low, like single digit millions to very low, you know, eight figures the second year to like low to mid nine figures the third year. Like it, it was wow. insane. Right. In three years, three years. Absolutely insane. Um, but real quick, first of all, Pronouncers Conf is coming back 2022 this year. Really excited to announce it November 5th, all the way 6th and then 7th. That's a Saturday through a Monday in Fort Worth, Texas. Go to printhustlers.com. Check it out. We've got the first day is intros, some Printavo training, some Inksoft training. That's going to be great. Then the second day, a ton of really great talks. The last day, a tour and just a lot of hanging out time and dinners and get togethers and, and all that good stuff. Very excited for it. So definitely be able to join in. Wait, but real quick here, we've got a couple sponsors I want to talk about. First off, Graphics Source. If you need a solution to help improve your efficiency and reduce costs, in your art department, Graphic Source is a leading outsource option to be able to help. I keep talking about Graphic Source to so many shops because they have so much success with them. Just being able to handle production, art separations, um, order entry, approvals, digitizing, all that good stuff, that is GraphX Source, and they'll plug right into your Printavo workflow too. Easy way. You shouldn't be spending all day cleaning dirty screens and you know it. Easyway's line of environmentally conscious chemicals will get the job done faster, more efficiently, and cost you a fraction of the cost per screen. And Ophiric is a, a big Easyway user and graphic source as well. Multicraft. If you've never heard of Multicraft underscore daddy, they're doing some really amazing things. Multicraft is an awesome distributor that you can get ink supplies or a daddy and you can check them out. Multicraft screen printing and digital supplies for over 50 years have been providing you with top brands at competitive pricing. Now, make sure though, you mentioned a Printable podcast because you can get an extra 10% off your first order. Also, don't forget to mention Printable pod off a uh, graphic source for half off your first vector separation or uh, embroidery order for digitizing. All right. And then last but not least, Mr. Supa Color. Supercolor is made by screen printers for screen printers. We went to their facility. They're building something absolutely amazing to be able to do really, really high quality heat transfers. And uh, they really understand how screen, print, screen printing businesses work from small to large to be able to help you be able to do that. Mention Printavo 15 to get 15% off as well your first order. So that's really great. You can do it on t-shirts, caps, bags, whatever. They have a ton of different unique key transfers to be able to try out and use. All right. I'm excited for this episode. Let's hop on in. What's up, Walker? Hey, not, not much at all. It's been uh, a busy, a busy period, but I'm excited to chat. That's cool. Where, so where, where are you located at? Are, are you in San Francisco or are you in Los Angeles? Both? Both. Yeah. I kind of split time. Uh, our main office is in Los Angeles. So I spend a lot of time down there and then, uh, the Bay, my, my fiance, uh, her career, she, she works in biotech and she's got to be like in person in the Bay. And so, uh, can't fully move to LA, but just bounce back and forth was in LA oh. last week. 
San Francisco this week. We uh, we all know about this bouncing. Steven's <laughs> got the same and you know, production yep. in in three hours away, wife in Chicago. Yep. Uh, my wife in California. I'm back in Chicago and back and forth. Now more out here, but sometimes it can be a lot and sometimes, you know, I'm I'm excited to get the change. Yeah, one hundred percent. So um this is really cool. So first of all, thank you for joining because I feel like we were wanting to get this episode for quite some time. And the reason is, is because in, in the decorated side of the space, uh, we don't have as much exposure to like really cool tech, fast growth, um, and outside capital, even just, I feel like professionals sometimes it's like, you know, Steve and I will be talking and be like, I feel like we need somebody who's Six Sigma certified or who's run manufacturing at actual scale to help us understand what's going on here. Like, what is the best practices here? So, you know, you've, you, with your past of having scaled uh, Teespring, now working on fourth wall, which we're going to get all into, um, really excited just to be able to learn a lot more about this. So that was Walker, a big, just, just was, long just, thank you. Just to give you a little bit of background, Bruce and I have been talking a lot about raising capital and we've gotten, oh, we've stirred okay. the pot up. Uh, we recently raised some money from Mark Cuban, just a small bit of money, Congrats. which is nice, but we've gotten lots of like their vultures. You'd never want to do it. And so we've really been exploring it and chatting through it because it's like this completely other side of the business. Yep. Um, you know, obviously decorated apparel people like they know teespring they've they've heard about it this this crazy thing that you guys pulled off can you walk us through your days at brown or before you were starting to raise money like what were early early days and then what got you to want to raise capital yeah absolutely well you know i, I think that i started learning about the startup world uh, when like even before college, I was doing some graphic design, designing websites, making a little money on the side. Then I started to realize the coders were getting paid more. Starting to <laughs> Sounds familiar. Program websites, <laughs> yeah. uh, getting that side of things moving. And then as I had bigger and bigger ideas, originally I wanted to design video games. I started to realize, hey, I'm going to have to have a team for this. I don't have any money to afford this. How do I make that jump? and stumbled across the world of venture capital and, and investment. But all the way up, and even when I started Teespring, I really had no idea how it worked. I'd read a couple books and seen some things. But you know, for me, the way that we raised our first money, and it wasn't some big you know, famous investor, certainly wasn't Mark Cuban. It was a couple local folks in Rhode Island that I had met from other projects that I had been doing. So I was just at the startup meetups, at the tech, uh, you know, like little gatherings in Rhode Island, which is a pretty small place, so not too hard to, to learn the network. And we had met a investor and previous entrepreneur named Bill Caesar, and he had uh, expressed interest in one of my previous side projects. And then when I stumbled across uh, the concept that became Teespring, you know, right away, I, I knew it was going to be big because it sold itself more so than any other project that I'd ever done before. You know, like the, the company that I was working on prior to Teespring was a student job search engine. And I was selling so hard these companies, like trying to convince them to spend, you know, 60, 70 bucks on a student job listing and then fighting so hard to get students to want to, you know, apply for these jobs and do a good job for, you know, 
for these employers. And it was a battle. And I think we had reached like five or $10,000 in sales, but it was, you know, every, every single inch was hard work. And then for Teespring, it was completely different. It was a one day side project. The local dive bar at my college got shut down, got raided by police for allowing everybody in that was, you know, 18 <laughs> years old, which is why it was the the favorite dive bar on campus. And also sounds familiar. Yeah. And, and Facebook was blowing up and I was an entrepreneur. I was also broke and I wanted to make a little money. So I designed a t-shirt, threw together a quick website and said, if I can get, can't remember what the number was, but like 500 people to pre-order this product, I'll, I'll get a local printer to print them. You can pick them up. And uh, yeah, I added, you know, a five or $10 margin to it, but I made more money in that one day from that, you know, bar, remember the bar t-shirt that I had made in six months of working my ass off on the student job engine. And, and not only did I make more money, but I got all of these emails from other people that wanted to do the same thing. Hey, you know, I've got an idea for the Taekwondo club, some fraternities reached out. Uh, you know, there was a charity walk that reached out and said, Hey, can you set me up a website like that? And in all of my previous experience, I'd never run into anything like that, where, where an idea sold itself and people were making these sort of leaps of, of logic of like, oh, if he did that for this Save the Bar t-shirt, I could do that for this other idea I had. So I, I was at one of these tech meetups. Uh, this investor, Bill Caesar, came up and you know sort of said, hey, how's that student job engine going? I said, well, no longer working on that. I've got this other thing going. And he said, ah, screw it. Uh, you know, I'd love to throw in some money. And he actually became a part of the company for five years, a big part of uh, founding it. But I stumbled into it. Now, since then, unfortunately, in, in some respects, I've had to get very acquainted with the world of raising money. Uh, Teespring raised something like $60 million. Fourth Wall, my new company that I started in mid-2019, has raised $20 million. So I do know that world really well and, and very happy to talk about the pros and cons of, uh, of it. There's, and there are pros and there are definitely not. So I'm in, I'm in the middle of it right now. Uh, and I'm well, learning. Can you you want to touch on a couple? Cause you know, we did talk yeah. about this in the, this previous episode. So maybe, maybe just riff on, on some of those pros and cons that you've seen, especially going through it twice so far. Yeah. Well, I think there's different worlds of investment, right? I think, you know, there's the venture capital world, which has very unique dynamics. I think the biggest of which is that the theory of venture capital is to take like home run swings only. They're not looking for a single or a double. So if you went to a venture capitalist and said, hey, this thing's got a real good chance of being a $100 million company, they're not interested, which is crazy to think about, but they're not interested. They want a very small chance at 10 billion, 100 billion. So the way you have to pitch your company is, a, is very unique if you're going after the venture capital because you have to structure it to be you know all or nothing. Now, the con of that, of course, is that swinging for the fences like that, very few companies become $10 billion companies. And so if you raise money on those expectations, those investors aren't going to be happy with slow growth, slow but stable growth, you know, profitability. They want you to go all out, right? And so there's a little, there's definitely a, a drawback there because, you know, you might have a business that's a good mid-sized business, but a venture capitalist, they're going to want you to risk everything. And, and every time you grow, put the chips back on the table and shoot for another 10x, even if you fail. They'd rather it failed than ended up being a mid-sized success. So that's the real downside of venture capital. And, and Walker, like, like, go ahead, Bruce. Go, Sorry. No, 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 you go, you go in. 
I, I was going to say like you are taking an antiquated business of printing, right? Mm-hmm. Adding a crowdfunding component to it. So there's like a big tech play. The, the most unsexy part is the printing, right? Like investors are not into manufacturing. Am I, is that right or wrong? Or, <laughs> you know, I would say it's funny because maybe to the VCs, it's just sort of a nuts and bolts, how it gets done. But mm-hmm. to the customer, it's the most important, right? And, and I think the VCs recognize that to some extent, you know, as you get into the details, they'll say, well, how are you going to set up manufacturing? How are you going to do this at scale? But you're right that it's not the thing they're going to focus on or go very deep on. But for the actual customers of the business, nothing is more important than quality. And, you know, that has been universal through Teespring. Uh, You know, different markets have different expectations of quality and a balance of quality and price. But it's certainly true at Fourth Wall. You know, we work with a lot of Internet famous people, YouTubers, podcasters, uh, and quality on all of our market research, all of our sales calls, that's the number one thing they're looking for. Quality and unique product, interesting, different product, a little different than you know a standard uh, front print. Just as the market has gotten more mature, people want to have something that's different for their, for their customers. When you had raised your first thing, and just so you all know, like Teespring's connected to YouTube, like there are some crazy doors that were opened. You guys grew really, really quickly. And then at a certain point, like throttled back a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think sure. I, I would want to be a, like a fly on the wall in those meetings. But like, what was going through your head when that happened? Yeah. First, that throttling back, not exactly intentional. Uh, so <laughs> Teespring went through some ridiculous growth. Ridiculous. You know, uh, I, I can't say the exact numbers because I'm under confidentiality agreement. But, you know, we went from single digit millions the first year, very low, like single digit millions to very low, you know, eight figures the second year to like low to mid nine figures the third year. Like it it was insane. Wait, in three years? Three years. And, you know, in many ways it was unhealthy uh, because you can't scale physical manufacturing that fast, right? So quality drop, turnaround times dropped, but the company absolutely exploded and it was really on the back of a couple things. The first couple years were all groups and communities, blogs, Facebook, uh, Facebook groups, uh, you know, various folks that had audiences, college groups, charities, etc. But really what exploded the company was, was people using the product in combination with advertisement, Facebook ads specifically. And so that was a great, you know, buzz to, to, to grow like that felt like we could do no wrong, frankly. And, and, and I don't think we had, you know, we're not, I don't think we deserve much credit for that growth because we, as in people would advertise their campaigns using Facebook so to drive traffic or you guys advertising campaigns. It was users. Directly. It was the actual sellers, the merchants doing it. And so what happened was there was all these people with, with Facebook ads expertise or, you know, the desire to become Facebook ad experts but they didn't have products. And then the, what Facebook was doing was it was selling all of this long tail data, right? You would get this incredibly in-depth data about the customers. So they would use Teespring to set up these very long tail uh, ad targeting structures. So they might go like, hey, I'm a Nebraska mom whose son is a mechanic living in Oklahoma, right? And you could create a Teespring campaign for that specific audience, which is a small audience, 
But Teespring made it so easy, you know, the overhead of doing manufacturing and operations and design was pretty light. And now you take those two states in that advertising campaign and you swap them around for every other two combination of states. And all of a sudden you've created a thousand products from one design, just swapping the names of the states. And you've got a thousand different ads running. And for that very small audience, it's the perfect shirt. Or to some people, it's the perfect shirt because it's so specific to them in their life. And so it converted really, really well. And that was really what blew the company up. So these Hmm. mega sellers were really arbitraging, uh, you know, probably Facebook's cheap advertising at the time. Um, And then also probably it sounds like this just very personalized direct uh, marketing here. But like, I'm just trying to think about very roughly one to call it a hundred million plus in sales in three years. How, how does that even work? Like how, (laughs) <laughs> Where does the team come from to 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 really be able to handle that, or is so much of it tech driven that it funnels off to production? And then, like, how does the production scale with something like that? I can't imagine it's just like, okay, we've got this one facility; they just can keep taking stuff on. It's like constantly onboarding new folks and, and production or, or decoration methods. And uh, was it international? There's how did that? What did that all more so look like? Yeah. So the- the scaling, you know, I, I think we almost benefited from a lack of experience. Like I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was right out of college. I didn't know that it was unusual to grow that fast. I mean, I had some idea, but I didn't realize how absurd it was. But you're, you're dead right. We started with one screen printing partner and that was fine for the first year. And then all of a sudden we were onboarding new partners like on a, on a weekly or monthly basis. And one of the craziest parts about it is that the team that was facilitating this, this nine figures of business, it was like three or four people during this, the start of that. It was three or four people without a lot of background experience in manufacturing operations. We didn't, hadn't brought in, you know, experts. We didn't have our own facility. And I think, again, by virtue of the fact that we didn't realize how crazy it was, we managed to design very simple systems that allowed us to get it done. But it was, it was so far from perfect. There was not much quality control. You know, we were sending these jobs out. We had no real visibility if they were going out on time. You know, later we found out that the vast majority were not going out on time. They were late. So it, it was anything but, you know, some streamlined, organized process. It, it was like, uh, it was chaos. And then we slowly added structure to that over time and, you know, by 2015, 2016, it was very much an engine. We had our own facility for some of the print on demand. We had partners that were completely API integrated for the screen printing side, and it really had stabilized out. But those first few years were uh, were chaos to say the least. And and just so like listeners know, because you were taking these orders all at once, so like the way a campaign would work, correct me if I'm wrong, Walker, is you know it'd be like, hey, you have up until this day to buy this shirt. And it would tell you like how many had been bought when you went and produced it, it would then be screen printed. Like you weren't even talking DTG or anything like tell us about the actual production. Yeah. Well, when we got started hybrid, one of the reasons that Teespring took off in the early days was when the company was started, cafe press and Zazzle existed. Right. But the, the quality was really bad. It was like, you know, not certainly not like direct to film today. It was like iron on, you know, it might be good for a joke shirt, but you certainly weren't looking that as a, looking at that as a high quality product. And the price was super high. So the 
The real insight of what Teespring did was it let people access screen printing, so high quality product at usually pretty reasonable prices without paying up front. And, and the way that we did that is we would do these effectively pre-order periods. We'd collect all the orders, we'd know exactly what sizes we needed, where the product would need to be shipped, and then we would deliver these batch orders to the printers. They would print in a, in a normal fashion, just like a normal order, and then the one you know special thing they had to do was individually fulfill the products, which today is not crazy, but back then was pretty unheard of for individual fulfillment to customers. Uh, and then they would send it out. But the the merchants that use Teespring, the sellers, they would get a higher quality product at a reasonable price before on-demand existed. So we were doing an enormous amount of screen printing jobs, tons of small ones. We had screen printers we worked with that specialized in smaller batch sizes, and then some enormous ones, tens of thousands that we worked with different printers for. So it's sort of you know, diversified from a collection of printers that was comfortable with small quantities and quick turnarounds, and then more traditional partners that loved the high volume stuff and were willing to do the individual fulfillment to get those orders. Were there pivotal aspects of the business here that helped? I mean, you were 10Xing every year for a couple of years here. Were there certain things that, that really accelerated the business forward or or it, it was just riding a bull for that, that time period? I think it was largely riding, riding the bull. I think the core, the first year, putting the concept together, giving people access to this idea of, I don't have to do customer support. I don't have to build the website. The product cost is good, especially if I sell in higher quantities. And it, it's just so quick. That was that was the magic of it. And then the second component was just opening it up to different markets. So, you know, originally it was these college groups and charities and then online Facebook groups at that time and blogs started to get a hold of it. And then eventually the, the folks that were advertising, you know, uh, internet marketers, Facebook advertisers, they got a hold of it. But if I look back, you know, if anything, the growth was like in spite of what we were doing because we were, you know, uh, uh, candidly like a group of kids and we didn't know what we were doing. So I think it was the original insight that powered us for those first few years. We certainly got a lot more sophisticated over time and started to, you know, really improve the product. But it was just a concept at the right time, got a little bit lucky and it just, it just took mm -hmm. off. What, what about the marketing side? Like, was there much marketing or was a lot of it uh, more natural, organic? Like, was it press or like, how, how did people hear about you guys? Or, or did they interact with Teespring because they bought something and then it kind of exponentially? You know, in the early days, it was a lot of hustle. Uh, it was a lot of cold email, reaching out, connecting with people on Facebook at that time, sending them messages. Uh, and then once it, once like, you know, I, I was equated to like pushing a boulder up a hill. And so that first year, it didn't, you know, even though we did a million dollars our first year, it didn't feel good. It felt every month we would look at those sales numbers. And we we got to get those up. We don't have a lot of money in the bank. You know, we weren't paying ourselves like hardly anything. I think I, my salary was like 20,000 a year and we were just had to get more. But if you look back on it, it was every month, slow and steady up into the right. But at a certain point, especially when those Facebook marketers started to use it, it was like we went over the top of the hill with the boulder and, and then it started to roll on its own. And I think what happened was, you know, uh, business success, making money is a powerful motivator for a lot of people. 
And if you go to Amazon, or sorry, if you go to Amazon as well, if you go to YouTube, Amazon, and you search Teespring, you're going to find hundreds and hundreds of eBooks, uh, YouTube videos, how to make money with Teespring. And so once these crazy success stories started coming out of people making millions and millions of dollars, it, it marketed itself. So there was never really a huge amount of marketing, probably less than we should have done. There was a lot of direct sales. And then at a certain point, the ball started to roll because people started to hear about it. Some of these insane success stories started to come out. And then other people were naturally attracted to that. I think the platform that you created, and I remember Stephen actually shared it with me like years and years ago. Is like, dude, this is amazing for fundraising. Um, as we were building like a fundraising product and things, uh, this is what you guys got to look at to build for shops to be able to use. 10x, you know, a year is not obviously sustainable forever. So, wh- what was the what was the before I guess you left? What what did that ha- like? What happened? I guess is the yeah. I'm trying to put it so it doesn't like sound negative because it's like not negative. Like this is freaking unbelievable. But then <laughs> what happened at the end? <laughs> and then there's there's not an end per se, right? Because they've Teespring has been able to pivot and do some really awesome stuff now. But you know, if you're it tenured. wasn't even at the end. It was like four years in. You know, the first three years were you know it felt like man, this is easy. Can't believe people think this is yeah. hard. This is uh, you know you just put it up there and people flood the website and you're just trying to survive the growth. But what happened is, you know, the same thing that propelled us to that last 10x, those Facebook ads, you know, we were playing in somebody else's backyard, Facebook, and Facebook made significant changes uh, to the as sort of sentiment, public sentiment turned against Facebook and how much information was you were able to target via advertisements. All of a sudden, our domain started to not perform as well. We were an enormous amount of Facebook's revenue in 2014, like three or 4% of the total money that Facebook made. That's how many t-shirts were exploding onto Facebook because people were making so much money. And while they converted really well, and that was the thing, the ad cost was very low because the shirts were so targeted, they were also controversial. They got a lot of reports because, you know, we were effectively taking this very deep ad targeting. We weren't doing it, our merchants were doing it, but they were taking that ad targeting and putting it right on a shirt. So as somebody browsing Facebook, you would see, oh, this person knows that I live in this state and that my son is in this profession living in this state. So some people, awesome. I want to buy that. Some people, hey, that's a little creepy. And they would report it. And so at a certain point, Facebook decided enough is enough and uh, you know, sort of put the clamps on that side of growth. And then all of a sudden, kind of almost overnight, growth stopped. And then it sort of was like, okay, what do we do? Are we going to be able to get a growth going again? Do we have to, you know, switch what we're doing? But the problem is when you're at those numbers, it's hard to grow. Even if you start a new business channel, you know, moving from nine figures, significant growth from there is, it's a, that's a big mountain to climb. So for a couple of years there, uh, it was, it was a process of figuring out, well, what's next? Is it going to be Facebook again? Is it going to be other channels. We had other, you know, there were certainly other parts of the business like the creator space that were growing nicely underneath that, but it was definitely, you know, the opposite of that, uh, that early, you know, we can do no wrong phase. It was much more of a period of, Oh, Holy shit. Yeah. This is going to be really, really hard and we've got to figure something out. And when growth stops, if, if you think about, you know, I talked about the cons of VC, 
one of the cons of VC is that when growth stops, that money that was just unlimited and there, when they realize that the chance of this being a home run is smaller because the growth is starting to plateau, all of a sudden that money is a whole lot harder to get. And that's a drug that's kind of hard to to wean off of, you know, unlimited money, spend it on what you want. It's very cheap as well, the, you know, the valuations that you're getting. And so the company went through like a hard couple of years of figuring it out uh, in terms of what was going to come next. You know, again, I can't go into too, too much specifics, but the good news is that after that really brutal couple of years, which included, you know, we had to cut the size of the team significantly, uh, tons of different adjustments, we had to move to a smaller office. Like it was a real sort of uh, realization of the re- like oh, yeah. a, a welcome to reality yeah. moment, right? But at the <laughs> end of it, the company was profitable. Uh, you know, again, I'm not that involved today, but they, you know, seems like things are going really well. They had some really strong growth years. Uh, I'm not exactly sure about the details, but you know, it, it, it certainly found other channels to grow, but it was a brutal couple of years for sure. So Walker, like you're not there anymore. And, and when we talk a lot about VC, we talk about the word exit. Um, did you think of exit in mind when you started this? How did you think of like, how long, how long do I want to do this for? Like, you know, we, we see in our printing industry, a lot of people are like lifers, you know, they've been printing their whole life, whatever, but you kind of came at it from a different approach. How did you think about your exit or, or how did that all go down? If you might, might be able to talk about it. When I first started the company, I thought, you know, Hey, I'm a, cause I, up to that point, I had been coming up with new mm-hmm. ideas every couple months practically. Right. So I thought this was just another idea. I was going to run with it until I could run no more and then move on to the next thing. And then, you know, Building it, I, you know, I'm a masochist, I guess, an addict, and I, I just loved the process of building it. I don't know if you even call it loved. I was maybe addicted to the process, the highs and lows. And, and I also, I'm definitely a believer that, you know, if, you, if, if you're chasing money, it's going to be a lot harder to, to like make money. It's better to chase something you really love and can do on a, on a long-term basis where, you know, you enjoy it. It's not just about the money. That's the only way to get through like the low times. So I would say that I didn't, you know, maybe the first six months year I was thinking about exit. And then I rarely thought about it after that point. It was kind of a, I I hope there's some form of outcome here that, you know, allows me to not have to think about money and, you know, not have that on my, on my back. But it was never about, Hey, how are we going to sell this thing? Uh, You know, actually in the, in the toughest times, Oh, I thought about it and I talked to people, but 90% 90% of the time, it was more a, a sense of how big can this thing be? Can we be a really valuable partner to folks? And and that was the focus. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I try not to think or focus too much on the exit side just because I, I think it's really hard. Every Building any business is is so much work and there's so much uncertainty and doubt. And I think if you're just trying to make a quick buck, it's going to be really hard to get there because, you know, if you talk to almost anyone that's built a successful business, there were hard times and times where it seemed completely hopeless. And it's usually the folks that power through those and they enjoy what they do enough to say, ah, oh, well, I'm going to keep after it. And I really want to make this a great thing. Those are the ones that long term end up reaching uh, reaching success. A quick pivot over to Fourth Wall. So uh, a newer company that you started a couple of years ago now, fourthwall.com. Uh, it, it appears that Fourth Wall is an e-commerce platform, very specifically for influencers. Um, 
it sounds like there's some the, the niche is more specific that to be able to handle it than uh, a Shopify. So from the outside, at least it appears it's like taking tech again to apply to this industry that's probably very manual as, as facts as the back and forth and dealing with inventory and, and all this stuff and making it a lot more efficient and a lot more personalized for this niche. Is that right? It, am I describing or what am I missing? Yeah, you're, you're pretty spot on there. So, you know, content creation, which is podcasts, YouTube, this new form of like entertainment that's being delivered directly to fans, the kind of a, and just what's happened since YouTube emerged it, it, the, the growth of it has been absolutely crazy. Like, you know, people watch more YouTube than all traditional TV on a daily basis than all traditional TV networks combined. 98% of Americans watch YouTube on a monthly basis. The vast majority of people are now listening to podcasts. So, so this sort of new age of entertainment has completely taken over the old world of movie stars and in some ways rock stars. Uh, it, it, it's just become huge. And underneath that are millions of people that would call themselves content creators, whether they use YouTube or TikTok, they, they're predominantly podcasters, Instagrammers, bloggers, et cetera. And they've been able to reach audiences through these platforms that have emerged, again, like YouTube and Instagram, but making money, mm -hmm. they've got to figure out how to do that on their own. And what we found is that e-commerce is a really effective way for them to make money because their fans are willing to support them. You know, like the equivalent of buying a concert tee if you went to a concert. Uh, but right. it's they don't have any hours in the day. And so they're trying to achieve something that's really high quality, you know, beautiful, feels like a million bucks, really high quality products, really high quality website. But they don't have a team to do it and they don't have any time to do it. And so what Fourth Wall is trying to do is, is almost combine some of what was great at Teespring in terms of the ease of use with what's great about Shopify, which is that you get this fully customized, fully branded website experience. So trying to take those two and combine them. And then, you know, we've got a, there's a bunch of small sort of special sauce that you can do for an e-commerce website that makes it more effective for, you know, people that are selling to fans, right? Like, you know, the way that Nike sells products to its customers is a lot different than how, a, you know, the right way for a YouTuber to sell products to their viewers. So we've, we've been able to find a lot Got of success it. there, but you're dead right. Like I, I didn't go that far. I love the, the combination of, you know, taking manufacturing, which for the vast majority of people is this crazy opaque world and using technology to make it easier to access. So it's not that, you know, far, far away from, uh, where I started on in the Teespring world, but uh, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. It's been interesting to do, you know, start again. Did you walk or raise any money for this or are you totally bootstrapping it? Ray, we raised money for it. Uh, thankfully there was a couple folks that on the, uh, that were investors in Teespring and, and friends, and they really loved the idea of where we were going for this. Uh, and so when I, when I left Teespring to start it and I gave Teespring a, a chunk of the company as part of it, but I raised money sort of right out of the gates and I knew, I knew what I, I knew much more. So I was able to set expectations a lot better with this company. We're certainly not growing at 10 X year over year. And I'm, I'm happy about that. Uh, but we've been able to build a product that I think is a lot better, uh, especially than those early days of Teespring and the, our customers love us, especially these YouTubers 
And it's been a lot. It's been really interesting to, uh, you know, do it with all the benefit of, you know, sometimes you ask yourself, if I could do it again, would I make the same mistakes? Right. And I think in, in many ways, I've been able to sort of live that with fourth wall after Teespring. What are yeah, those lessons learned? There's so much wisdom. Yeah. What are yeah, those like, lessons? If we think about going back, if I were to restart Printavo, for example, I know there's a lot of things that I would just do differently. I'm, I'm sure the same thing with Campus Inc. I mean, if you could riff on a couple of those things that you feel like that, all right, now that I want to apply, it's earlier management, it's this scale. And especially with this space, because you're doing it in this similar space again with working with decorators again and all that. Yeah, a few things. So one is to, to focus on what you love. Where So again, I started as a graphic designer and then I became a programmer, but I love to build things, right? And with Teespring, I started by building the product because I was one of like two people working on it. And so there was nothing else to do but design and build this great product experience, right? But then over time, you know, I was like, okay, I guess I'm the CEO here. I guess I, you know, I'm a manager. And, you know, over time I passed off product and engineering and design and all these things that I love. And I, you know, in my free time, I, I do and I read about because I'm passionate about it. And all of a sudden I was just in meetings all day. I'm not a good manager. I'm not like, I'm not talented in that way at any time, but I thought this is the path to success. So I gave up the things that I was good at and started to do the things that I thought were expected of me being, you know, the leader of a growing company. And that was just a massive mistake because I, not only was I a bad, you know, I was a bad CEO because I just wasn't a great manager of people, but I also felt like the product quality deteriorated over time. We had this really elegant, simple experience that was just beautiful. And then by virtue of trying to keep up with this growth and all sorts of other factors, all of a sudden, you know, I looked down at what we had built and I said, I don't know if I'm proud of this anymore. And so with fourth wall, even though it was originally my concept, I partnered with a close friend from over a decade, who's a great manager of people and really likes, you know, making sure people are happy and locked in and knowing what they're doing. He's the CEO. I, I focus on product. I get pulled into the fundraising and, and I do a lot of sales, which I think, you know, helps me build the product because I talk to customers, but I've stayed very, very focused on what I love doing. And therefore, you know, I think the company is better for it. The product is better. The team is happier because they have a great manager. They don't have to, you know, deal with me when I'm thinking about the, the product the whole time. So that's, that was probably the biggest one for me. And it just also means I'm less burnt out. I used to get home and barely, you know, barely be able to wake up in the morning to go to the office. Cause I was just like nine hours of meetings, one-on-ones dinner after that. Okay. Just make it through. Like that was like my daily experience. Wasn't excited about it. I was excited about the company, but not what was happening on a daily basis. Now I wake up and sure I got meetings and there's things I don't want to do, but a huge chunk of my day is, okay, I've got to figure out this UX or, you know, people are looking for this product. How are we going to deliver that product? So that's the biggest for me. It's just, again, it's like find something you love and become the best in the world at it and, and build off that. You don't have to follow traditional, you know, what's what you might perceive as the traditional path to success. So that's the biggest one. I don't know if you want me to ramble. I could ramble on for hours. Mm, that's really interesting. That, I think there's a lot of wisdom there is like just because you own the company doesn't mean you should be the CEO, right? And I think even listeners that run, you know, smaller printing companies can can take some wisdom there to say like just because your name's on on the tax return, like you can find great people 
And when you find great people, you might overpay them, but there's a peace of mind that they're going to do what they're good at and you can focus on what you're good at. And I think there's a lot of printers out there that are like, man, I just love printing. And it's like, that's fine. You still need someone to run the business. Um, I don't know, Bruce, what about for you? You guys like you've been going through this. Um, you know, it's so funny though, the way you talk about this Walker, I, I started in web design. I was doing UI design for, for small businesses. Then I got into the back end coding, you know, learned rails and that's how I built Printavo and everything. And, um, then as the company grew, you know, uh, before like the acquisition stuff last year, we were maybe at, uh, like 27, 28 people and definitely a heavy amount like you describe. I mean, it's like, I'm kind of like watching this at, at a totally different scale, but like, uh, of, okay, all the meetings and everything like that. And I feel like I love solving problems, but for sure, if you, I felt we didn't scale well enough with management and being able to handle all that. And then that causes me to be stressed out and, or, you know, head to the burnout yep. door. Right. And so it's interesting being able to say, I want to start this company, but not necessarily lead it. Cause part of your head is like, well then how, how do you, how do you have someone who's just as motivated as you, you know, unless it's just like even split or whatever, but to be able to take that role and execute on the vision that you have that, that my gut feels like, ah, oh, red flag, uh, hold yeah. on, you know, like, let me set everything up and do it. But maybe that's just like me trying to, trying to also to grab a hold of it, like everything else. But I think you can work with someone. So you don't even have to technically give up the CEO role. It's about what you do. Right. And there are a lot of people out there that are great people, managers, and organizers, operations, like executors, right? They're people that are going to make sure every train arrives on time. That's their specialty. And so I think when you find somebody great, that they're going to want to do that job because they're good at it. It brings them satisfaction and passion. It doesn't mean you don't work with them on, you know, hey, here's our strategy. Like you're sitting there, you're defining the strategy with them. But then once you agree on it, they're the person that's going to each day make sure the ship is, is sailing smoothly. And so that, that's the difference, mm -hmm. right? Uh, is, you know, for me, I'm not the person that's going to meet with all the different teams or the teams that need to be met with on a daily basis and, you know, talk with them and think about smaller decisions and set up systems, flows and organization plans. I'm, I would love to talk about where the yeah. company's going and the strategy. And we do work on that together. Me and my co-founder will, uh, but he's just, you know, it's just such a different art. And so I think if, if you can do the thing that, that like, you know, you finish doing it and you have more energy because you're so proud of what you did and feels like you could work all day, you just have so much of a better odds of success. And then if you can find a partner or a hire that fills out the side of things that loves the side of things that you don't love, then that's, that's like the secret combination. Cause now, yeah, there's still going to be hard times, but you're both sort of dividing and conquering on things that you're passionate about and want to be great at, it's just much easier to get through those tough times when you've got that combination of, you know, personalities where you each, you know, understand that you've got different areas of focus and you're great at them, but you don't mind the other person owning mm -hmm. their part of the business. It makes sense. It makes sense. How do you, so how do you guys deal with the decorator side? Like, how does that work? Do they log in and pull orders down or... Do they stock stuff? Do you stock you know, these stuff? These days you go through a lot of, yeah. And that's another there. big, uh, I guess, realization from, from Teespring and Teespring. 
we got to a certain scale and it was hard to keep up from a recruiting decorator side. And, you know, at that time, there weren't a ton of decorators with APIs or anything like that. So they would use our, you know, we had really basic software, really basic print, what we called our printer portal. Uh, and we made the decision, hey, let's open up our own manufacturing facility. And I think, you know, a lot of that was was hubris of, you know, we built this tech company, surely we can open a great production facility. And that was just incorrect. And it took us far more money and far more time to set up the shop and, and years and years to get it profitable. And it slowed us down a lot. And so I think, you know, eventually it became a great shop and we brought in experienced shop owners and, and we were able to make it a great asset for the business. But it, it, you know, we would have been better off continuing to partner with great decorators and supporting them and, you know, working with platforms, uh, you know, that, that made it easier for them to accept and route business. We made a mistake by insourcing. So with, with Fourth Wall, we work with a bunch of different decoration partners, both DTG and screen printers, embroidery houses, sublimation houses, some direct-to-film partners. So we have a variety of products, uh, but it's all through partners. And we try to make it as automated as possible through direct API connections, sometimes order desk. But, you know, we're, we're very clear, hey, we're the tech side. We're trying to find decorators that have great quality and are interested in like a fully automated work, automatic workflow where jobs come in. They don't have to, you know, talk to our team to accept a job or get a job. Uh, but we'll never get into that world of, you know, trying to set up our own decoration house or, or physical operations. Is everything on demand with that or, or do the printer stock or does it just depend? on the It customer? depends. We have a mix. Most creators, again, their number one priority is quality, right? And candidly, not candidly, I mean, the highest quality in the world is screen printing. Most like YouTubers, Instagrammers, podcasters, they'd like to go for a screen printed product. That was literally my, my, my next question was actually your thoughts on like digital over screen, but like how you do handle that. So anyway, yeah. I mean, like how does that work? Right. Because unless you're picking somebody with a ton of subscribers, followers or something, right. You you just don't know. And even then you don't know how much maybe they, they push it. Uh, And we've talked about this fair with like campus Inc. It's just like, yeah, there's a bit of an unknown with merch and that's where DTF has come in to be interesting. We're down the DTF. Yeah, I'll tell more you, right um, I, I, more and more, I think DTF is, is on our radar and we've got some partners that do it and, and we're watching it really closely because what, what people want is certainly that screen printing quality without the risk of minimums, right? That's the promised land. And, you know, DTG never quite got there. It, it certainly has improved since the early days. But, uh, you know, if someone says, hey, what's the highest quality print? I'm never going to say, oh, yeah, go, you know, DTG on demand. I'm going to say go screen printing if you can get there. And I think DTF might change that equation. And and I think a lot of our customers would switch over. Even customers that are screen printing today, I think, would be tempted to switch over, even if the cost was a little higher, just of the reliability of, you know, you can start producing and shipping it out right away. There's not the minimums. It doesn't have to be batched. You don't have to have people wait. Um, But today we do do a lot of screen printing. And we try to sort of warn our customers through the product and through, you know, our partner managers who, who talk directly to those those creators and say, hey, there's this minimum of whatever it might be, 50, 300, depends on the product, what they're doing, etc. Are you sure you want to do this? And if they sign up for it and, you know, we kind of tell them, hey, we think you can move this many, then we let them go for it. And if, if they miss the minimum, 
uh, then, you know, yeah, they have to cancel it or start over, switch the product to a, a direct to garment print. But uh, we try to open it up and we've had a, a fair amount of success with it. I think that, you know, it's we're not too far off of uh, I'd say it's about 50 50. I don't know the exact numbers, but in terms of screen printing. So what you're saying is you'll give influencers the option to say, okay, like higher risk, more profit. If you can move this much product, we'll do it this way. Otherwise, solution B is on demand, you know, lower quality. You're not going to make as much money. But really, you're taking the back end. Like, you know, an in, an influencer could set up their own Shopify. They could connect Printful. They could try and do all those things. Is is the like value add that you're just going to handle that for them? And, yeah. and make it super easy. Like, you know, what's in it for them versus it's like, like a fully using automated version of, of if you got the Shopify with the printful app installed and you set up customer support. So you get the, the website is easier to set up than Shopify, but it's still a hundred percent custom branded and completely customizable. So easier to set up the products. You don't have to go and install different print on demand apps. We have what we call a product catalog, There's hundreds of products in there. Printful is one of the, the suppliers in there, but there's a lot of different decoration partners in there. And you can uh, go in, choose from all of these different products, including different print techniques. You can design the product right inside of Fourth Wall. So it's a, you know one designer that you have to learn. You don't have to learn five different apps. And then we handle customer support. We take care of sales tax implications because we act as merchant of record. So it's just much, much easier for them to get going. Yeah, some you know, traders have agencies. Yeah, A lot of them are using Shopify. Shopify is certainly the the big player in our space but very few creators use shopify directly because you know shopify it it makes sense for people in the e-commerce world but if you have to spend you know your 40 hours or probably 50 60 hours a week for these creators creating videos creating content creating podcasts whatever they're doing and then they get into shopify and they see things like you know what's your SKU number what's your like tariff code you're like, oh man, I don't belong here. I'm this is thought this was gonna be easy. Maybe I'll maybe I'll save this for next week, right? They don't have enough time to become experts. And that's where fourth wall is really good. It's basically giving them the professional outcome like they get on Shopify, but designed for someone that only has a couple hours a week. It, this is not their full-time business. They just need it to work, but they want the quality to be great. That's kind of our our sweet spot. What about you, Walker? What, what, what do you feel like? Who, who are the folks that you listen to or, you know, podcast wise or read about or, you know, newsletters, yeah, anything like I, that? I listen to a lot of, and, and, and this is probably pretty generic and boring, but I listen to a lot of autobiographies of entrepreneurs. So I just uh, reread the Walmart book, uh, Made in America, which is super interesting. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts that are similar, podcasts called Acquired business breakdowns that basically just analyze startups. It's, you know, like I said, it's my, that's just, I'm a nerd about that stuff. And then the other stuff, I listen to a lot of history books for whatever reason, that's the combination. But if you look at my, my audible or my, uh, my bookshelf, it's all business, not business books, like autobiographies of entrepreneurs and history books. And for whatever reason, since, you know, teenager, that's just been what, what I love. All right, I'm clicking on these. I'm I'm literally writing these down so I can check them out as well. Do you listen to one called <laughs> yeah, My I'm, First Million? Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, of Sam Parr from back from the HustleCon days. But uh, you know, I I do listen to that. Uh, I would say that's like a close second to those those first like more business breakdowns. How I how I built this with Guy Raz is another one. But just that's that's my yeah, favorite classic. OG. I think he's he's hit the classic territory. <laughs> yeah, traditionalist. You're a traditionalist. <laughs> 
awesome. let's see. I, you know, I wrote down as my final question is, is there anything that I, that's interesting about you that I didn't ask? Interesting about me that you didn't ask or something that you guys are doing. You know, I, I, nothing jumps to mind in some ways. I think, uh, I'm, I'm so deep in building fourth wall that, you know, it is my life. And, and, you know, when I think about, sometimes people ask me like, what are your, what are your hobbies? And I do have hobbies. Like I like to travel, even though I, you know, don't get, don't travel that much right now with, with everything going on. But, uh, I, I love, like, I love what I do. Like I finish the day. Right. And I work long hours, but I don't mind it. It's almost, you know, I'll put it this way, Saturday afternoon and I don't have anything on. And let's say it's not that nice a day out. And I'm like, what do I, what do I want to do right now? A lot of times I end up working or reading about business. And it's not because I feel necessarily that I have to, it just happens to be something I enjoy. To me, it's almost like a video game. So I'm trying, there's not that much interesting about me because so much of my life is focused around this thing that I, that I love, my hobby, my video game, which is business. And then strangely, even more specifically, business, I love to help people on the business side and I love working with physical product you know, having something tangible that comes out the other side. And so it's just, I've, I stumbled into it, but I'm very lucky that I did just because I think I'm able to stay more focused and, and work harder on it because there's not much else I'd rather be doing. So that's probably the most boring answer you've, uh, you've gotten, but it's the truth. No, I love it. Awesome. This is Walker Williams, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Print Out Print Hustlers podcast. We'll see you guys in the next episode. It's Bruce from Fatal, Stephen Farrag. All right, later.